Well, hello and welcome once again to Raging and Eating. Do you hear that sound? Oh my God, can you hear it? The crashing waves, is it not gorgeous? It's some wild and frothy and kind of torrential crashing waves. There's no beach, it's completely covered with ocean. And the waves are so wild and so furious that the surfers are not even coming out. Usually they love this kind of thing. They're like, yeah, baby, it's a storm. I'm going to be jumping in right now. Yesterday was freezing cold and it was wild and frothy. And the surfers all jumped in. But today they're like, no way, Jose. Just a little too much for me. That's just fine because I love it. I don't care if it's wild or frothy. Actually, from my standpoint, it's kind of sexier that it's wild and frothy. I just love it. I love it. I love it. Maybe not to swim in it because I'd probably drown in about five seconds flat. But, you know, to observe it from a safe distance in a high perch, which is kind of like the way we sort of live life, right? These dangerous maybe exciting but dangerous things happen and we're much more comfortable observing them from far away from a high perch right but not everybody not the surfers who jumped in when it was wild and frothy yesterday and cold today it's not as cold but today not so much but that's okay it got me in the mood for feeling kind of sexy and excited so If you can hear the frothing, churning, wild, gorgeous ocean, just close your eyes and imagine it. It's a beautiful thing. And as I've said before, I grew up on the ocean. And people who grew up on water, they know what I mean when I say that it really is in my solar plexus. Like, I don't mind hiking in the mountains, love it. I love long walks in a forest, in nature, all of that. Love it, love it, love it. But get me near the ocean. I don't care what time of year it is. I don't care if it's July or January. I just get that warm and fuzzy feeling in my solar plexus. And a little message somewhere in my mind that says, you're home. You're totally home. You're home, girl. That's right. So I grew up on the Jersey Shore. We were what I would call smelling distance from the ocean. That meant we were close enough that if the wind was strong, we would get a gust of salt water kind of in our pores and our senses. We were always walking distance. When I lived in Bradley Beach, we were only about six blocks from the ocean. All right, when I lived in Rumson, it was more like a few miles from the ocean. But still, I'm a healthy girl with strong legs. It was walking distance and it was still smelling distance. And my fondest memories were on the ocean. I remember being on the beach with my parents. My mother would always bring enough food to feed Pittsburgh when we went to the beach. She'd be all comfortable in her folding chair under an umbrella. My dad would be perpetually in the water. You'd be playing around and playing around and then plop on the blanket, exhausted, in and out of the water. I think I probably almost drowned about 5,000 times, but you know what? My dad would always reach in and pull me out, which was kind of great to know that I could be saved by this big, giant guy. My dad just seemed huge to me, I guess. I would think of myself at six years old. He seemed like he was eight feet tall. 
and he was a G.I. Joe type, always playing racquetball with the buddies, the last of the World War II vets. He'd just reach in and yank us out when we started getting sucked away. Then we'd return to our blanket exhausted and just collapse. And my mother would put towels on top of us. So we'd be lying on some torn up blanket of some sort and then she'd cover us with towels. And I remember being covered up in those towels after having been kind of tossed around in the waves and just falling into the most wonderful sleep of my life with my mother kind of petting my back, usually with her foot because she was too lazy to bend down and pet my back with her hand, but that's okay. I felt my mother's foot on my back, which kind of, when you think about it, my mother's foot on my back might have been a predecessor for somehow the way we got along just a few years after that when I was a rebellious teenager, but I digress. Anyway, it's a fond memory, okay? I'm trying not to ruin it. And I just, I just love, love, love the ocean. So it's got me thinking a lot. I think I feel introspective and a little bit deeper when I'm near the ocean. I was thinking about Passover, and I know that's not coming up for a while until April 22nd. But what's interesting is that Passover is the exodus, the story of the escape. The Jews escaped from Pharaoh, from Egypt, from slavery. It's an exodus from slavery. And I was thinking about my book, which is coming out April 23rd. You have to go get a copy, by the way, called The Punk Rock Queen of the Jews. Is that a crazy title? But what I was thinking is it was supposed to come out last fall. And I thank God it didn't come out last fall because last fall is when all of that horrible, horrible, horrible murder and rape and torture and mayhem and cruelty and sadness happened in Israel. And just a heartbreaking, heartbreaking time. And it's still a heartbreaking time. The loss of innocent lives, women, children, babies, just terrible, terrible. And I didn't want to have something to celebrate in, in the middle of all that sadness. So it got postponed. It wasn't because of that. It got postponed because, I don't know, life happens. It got postponed till April of this year to be um, published right in the middle of Passover. Actually, publishing date is April 23rd, which is the second Seder, the second night of Passover. At first I was like, oh no, I'm gonna get published right in the middle of a big Jewish holiday, that's not good. But then the more I thought about it, the better I felt about it. Because my story is an exodus. It's my exodus escaping from Crown Heights, from a very, very repressive Hasidic community in Crown Heights. That's a long story. I'll tell you all about it one day soon. And the original title for the book was Exodus from Kingston Avenue. I changed titles a few times to become the punk rock queen of the Jews, which I love. But here we are, right back at the Exodus. It's going to come out right in the middle on the second night of Passover. And I just don't feel it's a coincidence. You know, more and more and more, the older I get, the less I believe in coincidence. I really do think things happen like they're supposed to happen. You see someone and you're like, how weird, I was just thinking of you. I don't think that that's a deja vu coincidence. I think there's a reason. I guess I'm kind of spiritual, you know what I mean? 
What's interesting is I just did this book talk for Hadassah. Hadassah is this Jewish women's organization that's always raising money for Israel. And my mother, she was the queen of Hadassah. If she had 10 coffee mugs that she got for free for opening a Christmas club account, have I told you about this? Every December, she would open these Christmas club accounts for a dollar. It wasn't like she'd open one for $100. It's like she'd open 100 Christmas club accounts for a dollar each. And every time you opened a Christmas club account, you would get a free present. So one year it'd be a flashlight, one year it'd be a coffee mug. So she'd have 100 flashlights or 100 coffee mugs. And then a couple of days after Christmas, she would go and close the accounts and take her dollars out. Her hundred dollars from her hundred Christmas Club accounts. That's why we had enough coffee mugs, you know, to feed coffee to an army. We had a zillion Hanukkah menorahs, which I still use my blessed Christmas Club Hanukkah menorah every Hanukkah. We had a zillion flashlights, pot holders. I mean, you name it, all these gifts. And I was like, Mom, what are you going to do? It's like in her hoarding house hotel the dining room. It was supposed to be a dining room. I never even once, even when we first moved in, I never got to sit in the dining room. I always thought, oh man, can we ever go in the dining room? Never, never got to go in the dining room. It became um, kind of like my mother's hoarding house of horrors. She had these folding tables and it would pile to the ceiling with just crap. So one entire wall was like, what we call the Christmas Club crap pile. Floor-to-ceiling coffee mugs, floor-to-ceiling flashlights, floor-to-ceiling oven mitts, you name it. And yet, there would finally come, once a year, the day of the purge. Not the purge where you go out and kill people, that movie, different kind of purge. The day of the purge, that would be Hadassah's Bazaar. My mother would announce... We're loading up for the Hadassah Bazaar. Picture a blood-curdling scream, okay? And so I'm not saying that the whole pile of crap disappeared, but a lot of it. If there were 100 coffee mugs, you know, maybe, maybe at least half of them, half the mitts, half the flashlights, just a ton of pickup truck full of crap would get hauled off for the Hadassah Bazaar to be sold, to raise money, to build hospitals. And this was always happening. Like if we had 10 boxes of crackers, a couple of them were going to Hadassah. If it wasn't for the bazaar, it was for the Hadassah meeting. And so I grew up just thinking Hadassah is, because I've been to a few of the meetings with my mother, it's a group that consisted entirely of old Jewish women who were perpetually raising money to build hospitals in Israel because there were perpetually reasons that it needed more and more and more hospitals. And the other thing that this money was always going to was to plant trees in Israel. So as I got older and I started understanding about the endless violence in the Middle East, suicide bombers and wars and just there was always 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 people being killed and terrible things happening 
then I thought actually maybe it's a good thing they keep building hospitals. Because when I was a kid, I was like, for crying out loud, mom, how many hospitals do they need, right? But maybe they need a lot of hospitals and they certainly need a lot of hospitals in the Gaza right now. The whole area needs a lot of hospitals. So I think any organization that's raising money to build hospitals is a good thing. But I went to do my talk to Hadassah, for Hadassah. And I just kept feeling like my mother, Harriet, Hannah Rachel, uh, would somehow know. How could she not know that her daughter was speaking for Hadassah? I mean, how could she not, right? I remember when I finally, finally, finally went to Israel after my parents were trying to get me to go to Israel. I say my parents, I mean my mother. And she said it was her and my father, but my father really didn't give a flying you-know-what. But my mother didn't want me to know my father didn't give a flying you-know-what. So she would say the both of us want, but really it was what my mother wanted. She was always trying to get me to go to Israel. And when I finally, 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 many years later, went to Israel, at this point, it was uh, at least 10 years after my mother passed away. Um, I brought her old t-shirt. I kept some of my mother's things. And she had this old, I think it was the Shrewsbury Fire Department of Shrewsbury, New Jersey. She had one of their t-shirts for some reason. No idea how she got it, but she did. So I brought her t-shirt with me. And I went to the Wailing Wall, which is supposed to be the holiest site that I know of. The last wall of the temple where everyone goes to pray, but of course the men and women are separate and the women can't go to the men's section and the men can't go to the women's section. It's all of these rules and regulations, but no matter. I brought her a t-shirt and I kind of held it on the wall and I closed my eyes and I said, Mom, give me a sign that you know that I brought your t-shirt to the wall. Just let me know that you know. And so nothing happened, and I was like, fine, be that way. But just then, I see this beautiful, beautiful bird, and it just was floating above me and dancing in the air. I mean, it wasn't flying. It was more like floating and gliding and dancing in the air as if just for my entertainment, just for my amusement. And I just felt so much love inside. I thought, oh, my God. I said, Mom mom it is you I'm here mom I'm here and the bird just kind of floated and danced and then it flew right over me as if to say I hear you and promptly pooped on me I was going to say the s-h-i-t word but I didn't say it because I'm a good girl and it's public radio but it promptly pooped on me and then I thought yes in fact that was certainly my mother she spent a lot of my young adulthood pooping on me. So that was really appropriate. So yeah, mom, okay, I got your message, fine. Anyway, so I do the Hadassah talk and it was like every Hadassah event I'd ever been to. The coffee was a little bit on the cold side. The water for the tea, in fact, was completely cold. The Jewish women... Uh, had raked through everything that was good to eat and there was very little left by the time I went to get something. And uh, everyone was sitting there with that look, that general look of dissatisfaction on their face, kind of a Jewish look, it's called a punim. 
the look reads as, all right, the coffee was, you know, not so hot. The tea was cold. The snacks weren't good enough for me. But I love you and you love me and I have a hemorrhoid. That's sort of like the look of general dissatisfaction. So I was like, oh, I felt so much love in my solar plexus. I'm like, this is mom, mom, do you know I'm here? I'm here. So I give my talk and I, they want to know all about my life, how I became a big shot, you know, sort of famous caterer, chef kind of person. And, you know, they want to know my story of being raised in this wacky white trash Jewish household and all the funny stories. So I'm telling them all my funny stories. And then I get to the part about when I was asked to cater the VIP after party for the vagina monologues and had to make all the food, shall we say, anatomically correct. And so a lot of the women are cracking up and a couple of them are like, looking at me like, what do you mean? I'm like, that's right. I had to feed 2,000 people a whole bunch of food that looked like vaginas. So here's the crazy thing. This is a room full of Jewish women, almost all of whom are mothers and grandmothers, and well acquainted with vaginas because they've all given birth. And almost all of them thought I was hysterical. But a few of them were very upset that I used the word vagina. There was one woman who was in the front row I couldn't really see past her because she was right in my face. She looked a little bit like Dr. Ruth Westheimer. Remember her? And she had this puss face. She was really dissatisfied that I used the V word. So much so that I finally had to say, are you all all right with the vagina word? And everyone's like, yes. They all laughed. They laughed. And I said, because the woman in the front row seems pretty upset about it. Ooh, she didn't like that at all. She made even a bigger puss face. Afterwards, the women said, oh, we loved you, we loved you. And I said, yeah, but a couple of the women didn't like that word vagina. And they were like, oh, forget it. There's always a few in every crowd. But I'm like, but I don't get it. It's not like I said a bad word. I mean, this is something to be celebrated. Viva la vagina. You know, let's get some woman power going. But I digress. So my point is celebrate the vagina at every, at every turn. Anyway, so it went fabulously. But again, I was like, Mom, I feel like you must have been here. Especially when my beautiful girlfriend, Lila, put a few things in her bag for later. Oh, my God, the food my mother took from these Hadassah events. We could have gotten arrested, except for the fact that she donated so much to Hadassah. I don't think anyone minded. But I felt surely that I would get a sign from my mother that she knew I was there. And at the end of the event, we're getting ready to go to a kosher-style-ish kind of deli to have things like knish and pastrami and corned beef, you know, that kind of stuff. In fact, as it turns out, I had a tuna melt on gluten-free bread because I just couldn't pass it up. But that was only after eating a barrel of half-sour pickles. Um, But I kept wanting a sign for my mother let me know that you know I was there. Let me know, let me know. And no sign, but I went into the bathroom and my mother probably spent half her life in the bathroom, so that was appropriate. And as I'm washing my hands, I look down and what do I see? A name tag. One of the women who had been at the event had thrown out her name tag. And the name tag said Harriet. That was my mother's name. And I picked up 
the Harriet name tag. And oh my God, smiled. And I just said, Mom, thank you. This was a lot better than being pooped on by a bird. I still have the name tag. I have it on the box of books. And I just think it's the coolest thing. So was that a coincidence that I should be asking my mother Harriet for a sign and then find a name tag that says Harriet? Was it a coincidence that I should be asking my mother for a sign and have a bird poop on me? I don't think so. What do you think? So I would say pay attention to things that are kooky like that. Like, how could that possibly be? Because it may be that someone's trying to tell you something for crying out loud. On other news, another news related about what's a coincidence, the only time I ever heard the word London broil, which is steak, of course, was growing up. My parents would perpetually have all of these less expensive cuts of meat that they got from the kosher butcher, and they would have something called London broil. Now, London broil, I always thought growing up was a specific steak. Like, you can have a sirloin, you can have a ribeye, you can have a flank steak, you can have a filet mignon, things like that, or a London broil, like a cut of steak. But in fact, it turns out it's kind of an umbrella name for any less expensive cut of steak. Could be, I guess, most usually associated with sirloin, but it could also mean flank steak, which is a steak we cook all the time catering. And what makes it a London broil is that it's marinated and then it's either grilled or cooked in a skillet or broiled and then sliced across the grain into thin slices and served with the sauce poured over it. It's kind of a way of cooking. So none of that rang true growing up, though. Growing up, it was always the cheaper cut of kosher meat and cooked until it was charcoal. I mean, burnt. 10 degrees past, well done. And the only way you could get it down was by covering it completely in ketchup. So I was so shocked when I got older and found out that steak could actually be pink inside and that you didn't need a saw to cut it and that you actually, it actually had a flavor that you didn't, you know, have to drown it with ketchup. It was kind of, I was like, oh my God, a whole world I didn't know about. So what's a coincidence is that for the first time in I don't know how many years, I heard the word when my partner Lila's sister, V, who we love, who's a fantastic cook, invited us over and she said, I have a London broil. What should I do with it? And I just started to laugh. So what I wanted to say is burn it till it's 10 degrees past well done and you need a saw to cut through it and then serve it with a gallon of ketchup. But I was afraid that she might actually believe me. So I told her to do what you're actually supposed to do to London broil, which is to marinate it. Some olive oil, balsamic, a little mustard, garlic, whatever else you got. And I guess it's marinating right now. We're going to be enjoying it tonight. But is it a coincidence that the lovely Vivi would be asking me about London broil? Just when I was thinking about my mother's London broil, I don't really think it's a coincidence. Since you want to know, I'm going to tell you what to do with London broil. You get your London broil, whatever steak it is that you got, probably sirloin, and marinate it. Marinate it in some olive oil and some cracked pepper, no salt. We don't put salt in the marinade. And a little balsamic vinegar, and then 
if you're not gluten-free, a little soy sauce. I prefer to use gluten-free tamari. And a couple of drizzles of Worcestershire is fabulous. Marinate it overnight. And then when you're ready to cook it, you take it out of the marinade, kind of shake off the extra marinade. You get like a cast iron skillet. It's really sexy, super hot. And you throw your steak down. And you really want to sear it on the outside. I would do both sides, of course. Maybe five minutes, five or six minutes, and then turn five or six minutes. You can even lift it up and do the sides of it, too. And then you want to cook it to where you want to have, like, a good steak. You could even, if it's a thick enough steak, you can even stick a little thermometer inside. It's not cheating. Like, rare, medium rare is, like, around 125, but where you feel it. And whether you want it medium or rare or medium rare or well done, however you want it. The other way you can cook it is in the broiler. Same idea. Broiler is very sexy. You could do about five or six minutes aside, whatever works for you. And then the big deal is you leave it alone. You take it out and you let it rest. People always make the mistake of cutting into steak right when they finish cooking it. And it's really gross. My mother would say, don't say gross. It was a lovely Jewish name until they ruined it. My mother's maiden name, of course. But just let it rest. 20 minutes, half hour, whatever. Let it rest. Leave it alone. Then when you're ready to eat it, you're going to cut it across the grain into these nice, thin, edible strips. And you serve it with the sauce poured over it. Now, how you make the sauce is you take that same marinade. Now, I don't ever believe in saving the marinade from chicken because raw chicken is, that really is gross. But this marinade, you pour it into a pot, you bring it to a boil. That's the reserve marinade that your steak was in. And you cook it and reduce and you cook it and reduce. And if it needs a little more tamari or a little more Worcestershire, you add it. But you cook and reduce until you have a nice, gorgeous sauce. And... Then you pour it over your sliced steak. And by the way, since you didn't put salt in the marinade, the time to salt it is just before you throw your steak down. Forgot to mention that. And I always use kosher salt. But if it entertains you, you could use garlic salt. Anyway, then you have this gorgeous sliced London broil with your sauce poured over it. And it's a sexy, beautiful, exciting thing. And not an overcooked burnt charcoal steak that's so well done you have to eat it with ketchup. That's not nearly as sexy. So I'm paying attention to coincidences because I don't think there are any. So think about it. Did you walk down the street and see someone just when you were thinking about them? Some people would say you actually manifested them. What do you think of that? That means you made them appear by thinking about them. Now, that's something you have to be careful about because a couple of times I thought about someone who was horrible, who I hope to never see again, and then they appeared, so I might have manifested them too. But in honor of the raging and glorious ocean, in honor of coincidences that are not a coincidence, in honor of my mother, Harriet, I say just celebrate life. Pay attention, pay attention to all of these signs from the universe that something exciting is bubbling up. You know, what I did to honor my mother, by the way, was once I actually learned how to make a steak that wasn't so burnt you had to drown it with ketchup, I thought, let me make a sauce in her honor to show her that I'm still paying tribute to her. And so I invented my burnt ketchup sauce, which essentially is a sauce that starts with pouring ketchup into a pot and burning it, and then also burning onions and burning jalapenos. 
and then pureeing and burning garlic too and pureeing it all and sweetening it up with a little bit of molasses and some hot sauce and Worcestershire and you get kind of a burnt ketchup sauce and it's crazy good. That's in honor of you, mom, because she would always say the same thing when we would complain, ma, it's burnt, it's burnt. She would say, I burn things because I love you. Charcoal is good for you. I love you so much. That's why I burnt it. Now look at all the charcoal you got. And we're like, thanks, Ma. Pass the Alka-Seltzer. There you have it. This is Rossi, better known as Chef Rossi, for raging and eating. And as always, food is love, and so are you.